Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Unmade in America, the wages of factory work. We'll open with At McKee's by Sonny Rollins and Coleman Hawkins off of the 1963 album Sonny Meets Hawk. McKee's was a famous jazz club at 63rd and Cottage in Woodlawn in Chicago. We're headed a bit further south and a little east from McKee's for today's interchange. Taking a close insider's look at Chicago's industrial southeast side in the 1970s and 80s offers us lessons of a period brought forward to our current moment when talking heads and politicians spout off about middle-class values and middle-class jobs and the way to make America great again. What today's show makes clear is that there's no middle in America. Just a great mass of exploited labor fed the dream of ease if only they'd just work a bit harder and a bit longer. My guest is David Ranney, who from 1976 to 1982 worked at several factory jobs in southeast Chicago and northwest Indiana after leaving the far less dangerous work of being an urban planning professor in Iowa. Ranny's day-to-day life on the factory floor is punctuated by spontaneous wildcat strikes over management abuses, an immigration raid, industrial accidents, a failed effort to unionize, and a murder. He details this in his new book, Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, From the Outside In and the Inside Out, newly published by PM Press. David Ranney is Professor Emeritus in the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He is also the author of Global Decisions, Local Collisions, Urban Life in the New World Order, and New World Disorder, The Decline of U.S. Power. By sharing his life working in the lower end of the so-called middle class, Dave Ranney wants readers to question what it is we want to bring back in order to make these working lives great. Ranny notes he got paid better for these difficult and dangerous jobs than workers do today, making the 2018 equivalent of about $23 an hour in the period he was a welder at Solo Cup. The average hourly wage for a welder today, nearly 40 years later, is $19. Wages are down and the cost of living is way up. What institutions in the U.S. have the workers' backs? These middle-class jobs pitted black and brown labor against white labor white management and white owners in factories that served as sites of immigration policy for social control, endangered worker safety and health, practiced environmental pollution as a matter of course, and hindered our ability to create a just society. And what about labor unions? In living and dying on the factory floor, they're either mobbed up or legally required and satisfied to side with the bosses. Just another way to keep the working stiffs at the grind. And now, Unmade in America, The Wages of Factory Work, with Dave Ranney on Interchange on WFHB. Dave, you've written a slim volume published by PM Press called Living and Dying on the Factory Floor from the outside in and the inside out. It's a vivid and powerful memoir of the years you worked in factories in Southeast Chicago and Northwest Indiana between 1976 and 1982. Do you mind first uh, 
explain the title a little bit? Yeah. Um, the uh, outside in, inside out part is that I uh, came to the factories uh, to essentially make money after I gave up a job at the University of Iowa and uh, was working with a friend of mine who uh, had a walk-in pro bono legal clinic called the Workers' Rights Center, ran out of money and decided to work in factories. And from the very beginning, I was a bit of an outsider. Uh, People didn't really know my background, but uh, I felt like an outsider. But I also was an insider because I was there working alongside people day after day, and I wrote it from both perspectives. The living and dying part is that uh, I tried to capture what living on the factory floor meant at that time, the nature of the work, the, the dangers, the um, fun we had, and uh, you know, as well as uh, some bad things that happened. Uh, we, I witnessed uh, several deaths while I was working, and that's the dying part. Mm. Uh, so that, uh, Dave, was uh, about 40 years ago, right? So what, that's correct. what prompted uh, the, the writing of the book? Well, uh, I guess I'm, I'm pushing 80 years old now, <laughs> and I started thinking about how I got to where I am today, and uh, was writing different things, and I went to a memoir class, and a, the teacher asked us to write down three events that transformed our lives. And I wrote down these three, and they were all deaths. And one of them was the death of a man named Charles Sanders. He was 24 years old when he died. He was a black man who worked at a place called Chicago Shortening, and a person I worked with every day. And he was murdered uh, at the plant in the aftermath of a wildcat strike. And so I began uh, writing his story and developing that and then realized that what I'm talking about just with him wasn't just with him, that it really involved a lot of people and I thought could be a real resource for activists today to understand what we did back then. So it became the whole book. Uh, you were an academic before this and an academic after this. Can you tell us about the decisions, one, first to become an academic and then to leave it and then go back to it? Yeah, well, you know, I did a fairly conventional thing for academics. That is, I went to graduate school, I got a PhD, and I was a professor at the University of Wisconsin first, and then later uh, University of Iowa. was very active in Iowa, and at that time, anti-war work, uh, active with the civil rights movements of that time, and a variety of local issues as well, but felt kind of constrained, felt like I was in a bit of a bubble, and had met this lawyer that I mentioned who had this workers' rights center in South Chicago, and I took a year's leave of absence to work with him, and then uh, promptly uh, ran out of money, and uh, we decided, you know, why not I start working in the factories, because those were the people that were coming into the legal clinic, but I did it essentially to make money. Um, And then uh, after I'd done this for a little more than seven years, I uh, I started to run out of steam, to tell you the truth, but also the uh, factory jobs were getting hard to come by, uh, and uh, we were really at the very beginning of the deindustrialization process, the collapse of manufacturing. I didn't quite see that at the time, but that is what was happening. So I kind of wormed my way back into academia, and they they didn't take me back in Iowa, but they did at the University of Illinois. You you wormed your way back in, eh? I did. <laughs> Went to a cocktail party, actually. <laughs> well, that's uh, 
that's a story in itself. Now, you were also a member of the Sojourner Truth Organization in Chicago. Can you tell a little bit about that as well? Yes. Uh, Sojourner Truth Organization was a, a, a revolutionary organization that uh, very much at that time uh, saw the activities that were going on in the factory floor as foreseeing the possibilities of a new society. So a lot of people in the organization were involved in factory work. Uh, we weren't there to recruit people. I mean, that was what was a little different from us with the other uh, organizations. But we were there to um, be of help if people needed it, but to integrate ourselves on a day-to-day basis with other workers. We had a very strong orientation to um, the whole uh, race and class issues of that time, and I think still today, um, where uh, we saw the importance of attending to the issues of, of white privilege, you know, relative to uh, workers of color, mm. and uh, that was a strong orientation mm. of, of STL. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Dave Ranney, author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, published by PM Press. About working in the factories of Chicago's Southeast Side from 1976 to 1982, and why nostalgia for so-called middle-class jobs like these is a manufactured fairy tale. So this is a, a, a long time ago, Dave, and it's only, I guess, become kind of a zeitgeist issue, right? White privilege in terms of how people see it, think about it. It's it's in the news. It's it's created a re- reactionary movement as well now. But here you are, and I think you mentioned work with was it Ted Allen? Is he is he the um, the man who wrote sort of the the book on white privilege at the time? Well, t- Ted Allen wrote the invention of the white race, which you know was an important book. I'd never met Ted Allen. Uh, Noel Ignatiev uh, and Ted wrote a polemic in the '60s, directed at another left organization called White Blind Spot, and uh, Noel wrote another one called Black Worker, White Worker. Uh, those those uh, works influenced me a great deal. Hmm. Tell me that the you know where where you were in those years prior to working in the factory. Were you working in academia in this particular kind of uh, study, this kind of social justice area? In you know, what was what was your? Well, my my field actually is uh, I, I have a PhD in uh, essentially public policy and uh, have a master's in urban planning. So I taught in urban planning schools. I'm trained in economics, so I focused on uh, economic analysis pretty much. Mm. And and so generally you just felt kind of either bored by academia or thought you weren't doing enough to make the world a better place? Well, I wasn't so much bored with academia. Uh, academia gave me a lot of leeway to do mm-hmm. uh, a lot of things. And we, in Iowa City, we did a great deal of work on all kinds of uh Issues because I, you know, I was interested and in I had become radicalized and I thought that we had the possibility of a new society. So that really became my focus. But I thought that despite the fact that we had quite a lot of success in organizing students and some of the town people in Iowa City around these issues, that this was a, you know, pretty uh, small field and I wanted to go to a place like Chicago. 
Mm. And when I had the opportunity to do it and got a leave of absence, I took the leave and mm. essentially never went back. Gotcha. Was not there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and <laughs> when I came back uh, to academia, I went to the University of Illinois, Chicago, mm. and did similar academic work there and continued uh, with the political work as well. Mm. So we on this program uh, in the past have talked uh, about the construction of the white race and we've talked about Du Bois and the sort of the the deal, the bargain that the white wa- – excuse me, the white laborer, the white uh, impoverished class makes so they can be better than, better off than uh, the black Americans. So this is the kind of thing that you're working with uh, – wor- that you're understanding as white privilege and that you're talking about when, when you're dealing with trying to understand those things within the factory system? Yes, and I do discuss this in the book. I mean, I think things have changed considerably uh, from what they were in the 1970s, but there are, uh, but I think the same thing in many ways is playing out in a different context. And I think one of the things that's changed is that um, a lot of uh, black people and, and uh, Latinos and so forth have uh, really occupied a different place in the class structure of this country um, you know, many more people are uh, are professionals and managers, what I would call the middle class. Um, many more are, are actually in the top 1%. There's, there's a fair number of people there. And they're in a very different spot than working class black people or black people who have been declassed by uh, not being able to find work at all and occupying in uh, great numbers and people who are in prison and you know, suffer from police uh, brutality in their communities. Uh, white white working class people uh, are also suffering more in the, in the area of privilege has shrunk a lot for a lot of people. Certainly not all, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of uh, very poor white people, and there always have been. But uh, I think... Uh, you know, I was talking about with this about this with some friends of mine the other day, and saying, you know, do we know um, what is the situation in a place like Amazon or or UPS? You know, uh, the uh, big firms that are in the uh, logistics industry, and you know, what what is is there a white privilege that exists in those places? And I don't know. I mean, I think that's something hmm. important to find out, but. One thing I do believe is that unlike the period that I write about in this book, uh, where jobs were actually growing um, rather rapidly and there were plenty of fairly well-paying factory jobs, I think the system is less able than it has been in a number of years to uh, actually take care of all the workers. And so you have a, a you know, a, a sort of unnecessary that is an awful lot of surplus right. people who uh, aren't really needed by the system and are, you know, in very dire circumstances. And I think that people of color are, are overpopulated among that segment, but that white people who are really on the edge of that feel very, very threatened right now. And I think that's partly what we're seeing in the rise of these uh, you know, white supremacist mm-hmm. uh, groups. time for a break. This is Devo with Gates of Steel, off of the album Freedom of Choice, released in 1980. 
More with Dave Ranney on factory work in Chicago when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Dave Ranney, author of the PM Press book, Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, From the Outside In and the Inside Out. In this segment, Dave details his work at Chicago Shortening, a workplace rife with racial tensions, and where he learned the ingredients of foods he would never eat again. Well, Dave, let's uh, let's talk about your factory work and and what you discovered there. You begin with a a, the, a place called is it Farak? Yeah, yeah. Farak is your first factory job, and um, it's fascinating that there's like that you couldn't find out what the name actually meant. I looked. I did a little digging before the show. I couldn't. I couldn't find anything that indicated what it meant either. <laughs> oh. I, don't, I don't think it's there anymore. It may have had to do with the names of the people. For sure, it, it makes you know, sense. It was a small machine mm-hmm. shop that rebuilt centrifuge machines. Um, I I knew absolutely nothing when I walked into that place, and I I was a little sadder but wiser when I walked out or got fired. Uh, but uh, it uh, it was a. I think a fairly typical place in those days. These things, there aren't many things like this anymore. Uh, where they uh, uh, took old machinery from mostly the rendering plants that were centrifuge machines and rebuilt them. And I, I learned a lot there. Mm. Now that that one ends in an injury for you, right? Yes, it did. Uh, yeah, uh, it was. It was not a. Uh, it was not a very safe place to work. There were a lot of minor injuries. My injury was pretty minor. You know, I uh, fell and cut my head open, and the boss had me drive myself to the <laughs> to the hospital uh, right. with a rag tied around my head. Right. Uh, and when I uh, came back in the uh, after the weekend, then you know he fired me. It's nice. Um, the Dave, as a as a guy who's not done that work before, you you came into that situation situation. I assume a little bit uh, nervous, right? A little bit scared about having no experience and being in a factory and having to deal with people that I assume you hadn't really worked with or been around before. That's true. That's true. 
yeah, yeah, I was very nervous about it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I there were some really nice people there that helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. And they, well, I didn't tell them. I didn't tell anybody. I had never done anything like this before. I actually made up my work history. Um, but, you know, they knew. The workers knew, and I think the boss eventually figured that out too. That's probably why I really got fired. Mm. Yeah, I, I think was it the next job where you kind of got found out, uh, or it seemed like you might have gotten found out in terms of not having a work history and or plausibly being something of a troublemaker. I think the next job, um, I, I believe the next job was Chicago Shortening. Yeah. Chicago Shortening is the one that, that that's uh, really the meat of the book. Uh, I didn't know if there was yeah, one. Was... Um, well, I did go to one place, uh, and I think it was after Chicago Shortening. Oh, okay. Packaging, okay. it's a big packaging. It was a box factory, mm-hmm. and there they actually did check my work record. Mm. And they had had some trouble with lefties, and, <laughs> and uh, they, they right. uh, caught me right away. Well, this is a big part of the book, and it's uh, again, it's uh, it's well written and it's uh, tense, and you know, no holds barred and bare bones, and uh, it's it put me on the edge of my seat generally, and and was I was always worried about uh, violence. Actually, I, you know, in the book, there's just this sense that anything could happen. Uh, you know, on the factory floor, even between workers, between you and management, between management and workers. Uh, it's a pretty tense situation, even as you, you write in a way that can be pretty light, too. It just comes out that it's it's a pretty scary situation, generally. I think uh, that outsider part of you has conveyed that pretty well. Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was a nasty place for many reasons. Right. Uh, dangerous and... Uh, there were lots of accidents. I had a big one there. All right, Chicago shortening. Yeah, so then, so then, that's the big one again. Um, and and uh, it it seems really to hold so many tales uh, that you want to tell in this industrial factory, working class labor world, class divisions, racial divisions in particular. Uh, so first, uh, Chicago shortening. Uh, I guess people will know what shortening is, uh, although who knows what people know anymore. Um, but uh, what did Chicago shortening do? Well, they took uh, rendered pig fat and bovine fat and uh, added a lot of chemicals and crap to it and uh, <laughs> and uh, processed it in various ways and then shipped it out to very mostly very big users like Keebler cookies, M&M candies, uh, places like that mm. that used a lot of uh, oil. Uh, we made hydrogenated oil, you know, that mm-hmm. you're not supposed to use anymore, but we sold a lot of that uh, where they combined the oil with hydrogen under pressure so it would get real hard. Mm. Well, they still use hydrogenated oil. Uh, I'm pretty sure I just looked at a jar of peanut butter in the in the um, grocery store that had it in it partially. Yeah, and I'd, I'd uh, leave it alone. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's what we've learned to do is leave it alone. It's uh, a funny part of your book, though, is that your asides about the things that you will no longer eat. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't a very appetizing place, for sure. Well, uh, first of all, let's, uh, again, I think we might need to explain rendering, um, you know, and when you say rendered fat, this is then just liquid. Liquidized, they, you know. They take uh, the uh, animals and they boil them up. I never went into one of the rendering plants, mm. but they boil them up and uh, extract all the fat, and then they put that in a big. Uh, we got we got a lot of some of ours. We got locally, and they came in by tanker trucks, and they they filled up uh, these big uh, uh, vats with with this stuff, and then uh, some of them came. Uh, all the way from Iowa, actually. Iowa beef processors uh, used to send railroad cars, uh, those tanker cars. 
cars, and they'd come into the rail yard full of this stuff, and they'd pump them out, and then they'd do stuff to them, and they'd put them in other railroad cars and tanker trucks and ship them out to various users. A beautiful, lovely process we can all be proud of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, you, yeah. You, what did you do there, Dave? I was in the maintenance uh, department. Um, you know, we essentially just fixed stuff that went wrong, and we rebuilt motors and rebuilt pumps, but uh, mostly we were troubleshooting around the plant. Um, hmm. Motors would burn out. We'd change motors over. Pumps would break down. We'd change the pumps and fix them. And now that's a pretty good job, right? It was a good job. Yeah, it was. It was dangerous, and but it was. You know, it was good. You know, it gave me a chance also when there things weren't broken to uh, go around and talk to people. Mm-hmm. So I really did get to know the workers, and I hung out in the locker room and mm-hmm. talked about all kinds of stuff, some of which I report on in the book. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Dave Ranney, author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, published by PM Press. About working in the factories of Chicago's Southeast Side from 1976 to 1982, and why nostalgia for so-called middle-class jobs like these is a manufactured fairy tale. Now, you talk about how you got that job and, and you know, you went in and you filled out an application form, but then you also took a test uh, to get you placed. That's right, yeah. And I, it was a hint. I didn't really quite realize what was going on. I was very naive. But, yeah, I, I went, I answered an ad in the paper and I went up and the plant engineer interviewed me. And he gave me a test, and it was, um, you know, I found it pretty easy. There were word problems. There were some simple math problems. Uh, I discovered later that the test had absolutely nothing to do with the job, and it was one that was tailored with somebody with at least a good high school education. And uh, and so I zipped right through it, but uh, didn't realize that it was a vehicle for keeping some of the black workers in the plant out of the job who didn't have that education. Yeah, so it's a, a process of discrimination begins right there. That's exactly right. I realized that once I got in fairly quickly and had a kind of debate with myself about whether you know I should even stay there, and then realized well they just you know hire some other white guy, so mm-hmm. might as well stick it out and see what happens. Was there a clear delineation in that factory in terms of uh, in terms of race? Yes. Yes, there was uh, the kind of jobs people had. There was uh, the Latinos all were working on what they call the filling line, where they uh, filled some of the uh, smaller containers of the stuff that they sold to chicken shacks and places like that. So they were all pretty much working together. There was one Mexican maintenance guy on third shift that I got to know pretty well. Um, but the, the interesting thing is there were... I talk in the book about there being essentially three different areas where people took their breaks. So there was a locker room that was really a mess and uh, a pretty nasty place, but it was where all the black workers hung out when they weren't working. And uh, then there was a area just around the fill line that the Latino workers pulled up boxes and stuff, and they took their breaks there. And then there was a a uh, room for the maintenance workers, who all but one of which was white, and you know I call it the white locker room, mm-hmm. but it had its 
own door and security, and it had a couch and a. This was kind of petty white privilege, mm-hmm. if you will. I mean, it had a couch and a uh, easy chair and a card table and stuff, and it contrasted with the other people. And after a time, I began to take my breaks in the, with the black workers mostly, and some with the Mexican workers. My Spanish wasn't so good, and they spoke in Spanish, but I did go there occasionally and try to uh, listen in and uh, participate a little bit. Now, that was part of your, your own understanding of what it meant to kind of create a solidarity and to make use of your own uh, uh, privilege or, you know, be able to, to share um, and to hear other people other than white people. Yes, that's, that's true. And, you know, some of the, the other white workers thought it was weird, but they, uh, two of them were very vicious uh, racists, uh, but not everybody. And uh, uh, particularly my partner is an older Polish man and he understood. He exactly he said that the reason the pipe fitters were so racist is they never took the time to get to know anybody, and mm. so he was very supportive of that. Mm. Black workers were a little suspicious at first, but you know, after we did it for a while, I, um, we all got to be friends. Really. Mm. Now you were injured again at this job, right? Yeah, I had a pretty bad injury. Was in the hospital a couple of weeks. This is the one with the steam, uh, the burst steam pipe. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, Pulled a cap off a pump that was had steam under pressure, and it uh, essentially blew up in my face. I got burned quite badly. When it happened, I was in the basement of the plant, and uh, there was a, uh, a basin nearby, a wash basin, and I knew enough about burns that I turned the cold water on and put my face under it, and uh, that really saved me from being horribly scarred and perhaps losing my eyesight. Mm. So that was sort of iffy for a while. And uh, then eventually the foreman came down and was essentially yelling at me, and uh, what are you doing with your face under the water? And They helped me up to the loading dock, and then uh, the foreman was told by the uh, plant engineer to take me to the hospital. And he was a real doofus, and he was lost <laughs> and everything. Kind of... That's a pretty, that's pretty, it's pretty funny, even though I'm sure you're like in agony, yeah. and he's, he can't find the hospital. Kind of funny looking back. Yeah, well, it's that's often the only time it is funny. Now, Red Solo Cup is the best receptacle for barbecues, tailgates, fairs, and festivals, and you, sir, do not have a pair. It's time for another break. This is Red Solo Cup by Toby Keith. I hope you'll forgive me for this, because our guest, Dave Ranney, worked for Solo Cup as a welder. We'll find out about that when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stay with us. Red Solo Cup, I fill you up. Let's have a party. Let's have a party. I love you, Red Solo Cup. I lift you up. Proceed to party. Proceed to party. But I really hate how you're easy to crack Cause when beer runs down in front of my back Well that, my friends, is quite yucky But I have to admit that the ladies get smitten Admiring how sharply my first name is written On you with a sharpie when I get to hitting On them to help me get lucky Red Solo Cup I fill you up Let's have a party Let's have a party. Yeah, 
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Dave Ranney, author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, is our guest. We begin with a wildcat strike at Chicago Shortening and then move on to Solo Cup and union organizing. Thank you for being my friend. Red Solo Cup I fill you up Let's have a party The, the big part of this uh, this chapter, too, is that uh, a strike happens at uh, Chicago Shortening. Yes, and it was a strike that had been building up for a long period of time. When I first started having conversations with people, they talked about how the union was corrupt and it wasn't any good and the benefits were bad, and, and they started talking about the last time they had a contract vote where they did a mail-in ballot, and they thought they just fixed the election, and I, I said, told them that a mail-in ballot was really pretty unusual without any kind of supervision of the of the count and uh, so we you know we had talked about this and then the union came in one day and said they were opening up a contract negotiation and it was very clear that when they had the vote that the vote was fixed and uh, um, and at that point and this was an interesting part of the book I uh, you know I just went along with what everybody else was doing and I made some suggestions for what they should take up during the negotiation process, but did little else until uh, the uh, I got a call one day to go up to the administrative offices while this process was going on, and uh, the workers had been demanding another vote on the contract ratification, and they assumed, because I was the white guy who passed the test, I guess, that I was responsible for that, which I wasn't, actually. But uh, when I went up to the offices, the union business agent was in the vice president's office by himself, sitting at the vice president's desk. And I walked in, and he said, you know, who do you think you are stirring up the news here? And I got mad and yelled at him, and he hit me and <laughs> knocked me out of the door of the plant, and I eventually retreated to the shop floor. And when the workers saw me, come down, saw my face was swollen, they went up after the union business agent, and uh, they shut down the plant. You know, it was spontaneous. Everybody went out. Hmm. What's a big part of this book is the the um, the problems with union leadership at the time, the problems with hierarchical organizations as such, problems with unions as they mimic capitalist business organization as well, and and get in with the uh, with the business itself. Uh, you bring out all these difficulties also. This particular union local was was. Uh, in addition to those things, was corrupt and probably mob-connected. And uh, there was a lot of bribes that went on in the plant, not only of the union people, but of the inspectors and so forth. Uh, so the company was corrupt as well. And they made a perfect couple, I think, in this case. Hmm. But, but, you know, I, some unions were better than others, but I think ultimately in a struggle like that, 
uh, the strike was illegal by U.S. labor law, the union came down four square on the side of the company. Uh, on the side of law, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, in this chapter, you do have meaningful relationships as well. There, And you do tell the story of Charles, uh, which you already talked about, um, seeing his death. What happened to Charles and how, how did what was your relationship with, with him like? Yeah, uh, I do spend a lot of time talking about that relationship. Uh, you know, he was a, uh, a very bright, charismatic guy. He had a lot of problems with uh, alcohol and substance abuse. Um, and he could be mean, but he could also be really nice and very insightful about a lot of things. He had gotten injured on the job uh, prior to the strike. had uh, crushed his hand and was still on disability when the strike started. So he, but he came to the picket line every day and he participated and showed some leadership in the strike. But despite that, the company had to take him back because he had been on disability leave and he hadn't gotten arrested during the strike or anything. So uh, most of us got fired. So most of the other workers were uh, had been scabs in the strike. He got in a fight with one of them one day on the job, and uh, the next day the worker that he had fought with and, and beaten up uh, ambushed him and, and stabbed him to death. So it, it was very traumatic. Uh, for all of us, and for me in particular, it's something that's really never left me. Mm, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, you, uh, what happened there? I mean, you, I, as you say, you, uh, as part of the strike, you were you were let go or fired along with with many other workers, and so you had to move a uh, move again to find another job, and and you went, right, a, yeah. yeah, you went to next Thrall Car, which produces railroad freight cars, and you become a welder there. That chapter is not very long, but it's it's one of the racist, you know, most racist chapters of the book. Yeah. Well, there were a group of, uh, I think they were from Indiana, actually, uh, a fundamentalist uh, uh, would-be preachers. I mean, people were going to, uh, I think it's in Crown Point, they were going to uh, Baptist uh, Bible College, and they were working on, on the shop floor on second shift when they weren't to earn their way through school. And yeah, some of them were were, uh, were very racist. This uh, this chapter two has separate locker rooms, or this this uh, this uh, factory also has separate well, locker rooms. It was one locker room, but it uh, uh, it was sort of informally segregated. That the black workers were all toward the other one end of the locker room. There was a kind of half wall in between mm. that and another section of the locker room where all the white workers were. Mm. So yeah, uh, you know it was. Um, when I came in, they were told me where to put my stuff, and I put it in a locker. And then I discovered later that it was it was uh, virtually segregated. You are listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Dave Ranney, author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, published by PM Press, about working in the factories of Chicago's Southeast Side from 1976 to 1982 and why nostalgia for so-called middle-class jobs like these is a manufactured fairy tale. Well, that didn't last long either, but you do learn, again, you do, do learn some skills along the way that help you get into a, another job. You, you move to the next, I guess, biggest uh, position you had, or most uh, maybe, again, another important chapter of the book, Solo Cup, uh, is the next one's family-owned and, of course, an anti-union uh, uh, 
corporation or factory. Um, and it's it is that right that it was mostly uh, Mexican and Eastern Europeans there? Yes, it was. There were, there were very. I don't remember any black workers there. No. Um, and I doubt if that happened by chance. Right. But they had a lot of Latino workers, and uh, the. Uh, but again, I was in maintenance. I was a machine mechanic and a welder there, and uh, that uh, the the uh, makeup of that was a mix of uh, Mexican and uh, Eastern European, mostly uh, white workers. Mm-hmm. Now it's in in this again. You have more union activity going on here, and again, uh, not uh, not such a great outcome there. This is a plastic workers uh, organization or plastic workers local, and again, you confront what is probably a mobbed up organization. That's correct. Yeah. Well, what happened was that uh, the. Uh, uh, one day when I was at work, a uh, group of Latino workers from the next shift that I didn't really know came in with organizer buttons on, and they were uh, trying to bring in a union as part of the labor's union that turned out to be mobbed up. Uh, I uh, did some looking into what the union was, and, I, and a number of people told me to be careful of that union and not to get involved, And but uh, I, I you know, I, so I didn't really have anything to do with the union organizing effort initially. And uh, when uh, uh, all of a sudden workers just started disappearing, you know, I mean, they just didn't come back the next day. And a friend of mine was Mexican and one of my fellow maintenance workers, I asked him if he knew what was going on. He says, it looks like they're firing Mexican workers who they think might vote in favor of this new union thing. So um, it, it it continued on, and it was rather startling. And so he and I decided to go and visit some of the workers that had been fired to see what happened. And we went to people's houses, talked to them. He knew a lot of them. And uh, we called a meeting of the workers. We didn't do this through the union. Uh, to tell them, I brought in my friend from the Workers' Rights Center and to tell them that they had a right to uh, charge the uh, company with unfair labor practices. At this point, the union uh, did come and asked me why we hadn't gone through them, and I said I thought they were busy with the organizing campaign, and they didn't seem to be doing anything about all the people who were getting fired. And uh, so we got involved that way, and then eventually uh, it appears that the uh, company and union bought off everybody, and it was rather startling what happened. We thought we had a tight case against the company, and uh, the, the union lawyer called me uh, and asked me out to lunch and told me that I shouldn't do that anymore, that, uh, that the struggle was over, and, uh, and he told me in no uncertain terms, uh, kind of a veiled threat. Right. And then the company president offered me and Amato, who was the other guy, uh, John, to <laughs> organize it. We declined. <laughs> Best not to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the the one thing I liked about this chapter too is the, you you um, you give a little detail about a guy named Lucky uh, who, and then you give a little bit of your own characterization of of solidarity and um, um, what it means to have been born and raised, be born and raised in Tito's Yugoslavia. Yes, right. Yeah, he was a very interesting man, and uh, he uh, highly, highly skilled guy who had gone through vocational uh, uh, education in uh, Tito's Yugoslavia. He, he was by no means a communist, but he 
um, admired Tito very much and thought that he had held the country together. He was Serbian. Of course, that whole thing fell apart uh, later. He taught me a tremendous amount about uh, uh, how to fix things and the welding, various kinds of welding I didn't know, and machine shop stuff. And, um, and one thing that impressed me about him is that when machines started messing up, he would go and talk to the workers who ran the machines and ask them what they were seeing. And uh, on that basis, he came up with solutions. Uh, he, he could have been a mechanical engineer you know, if he had uh, had the degrees and so forth in this country because he had much more skills a lot of the mechanical engineers I've known. Yeah, and you you paint a picture of him being just a, just an all around um, a good guy, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who cared about other people, listened to other people, uh, did the work, you know, the way a good way to do it, and and just seemed to be like the one of the exemplars in the book. Yeah, I I, I did. You know, that was one uh, job I lost that I, I actually felt bad about because uh, that really was a good job. Yeah, and it's go boys go. They'll time your every breath, and every day are in this place, your two days nearer death. But you go it's time for our final break. This is The Chemical Workers Song by Great Big C. When we return, Dave Ranney punches a hole in the mythology of the middle-class jobs that once made America so great. Stay with us. can breathe among the fumes that trail across the sky. There's thunder all around me, and there's poison in the air. There's a lousy smell that smacks of hell and dust all in the air And it's go, boys, go, help time your every breath And every day or in this place your two days nearer death But you go Well, I've worked among the spitters and I've breathed the oily smoke I've shoveled up the gypsum and at night I made you choke I've stood knee deep inside and I've got sick with a caustic burn Better working or a fight seen enough to make your stomach turn And it's go boys go, help time your every breath And every day or in this place your two days nearer death But you go There's overtime and bonus opportunities galore A young men like their money and they all come back for more But soon you're knocking on and you look older than you should for every bob made on the job, you pay with flesh and blood. And it's go, boys, go. They'll time your every breath. And every day or in this place, your two days nearer death. But you go. Well, Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this final segment, Dave Ranney, author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, responds to the myth of those so-called great middle-class jobs that politicians always promise to bring back. He also discusses his own responsibility as a white man to use his advantages to the benefit of socially disadvantaged workers, subjected to class bias and racism. And it's go, boys, go. They'll time your every breath. And every day or in this place your two days nearer death. But you go. We can skip over uh, Foseca, I suppose. Uh, we're we're going to push into some to a long uh, to go a little long here, and I want to get to your reflections. Um, 
And those are those are the 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 ways that we can think about uh, what's going on today, or the way the rhetoric is today, and and sort of your reflections about how life really is and how it really was forty years ago, and how uh, there there are certain things that are being said were never true in the first place. One of these being the idea that we're going to make America great again by bringing back middle class jobs. That, may, that always makes me mad when I hear that. And, you know, and Trump's not the only one that talks about middle-class right. jobs. I, uh, but, you know, the only thing uh, that was middle about those jobs is that they uh, paid pretty good money, and that's really because uh, labor in the past struggled to get pretty decent wages. My, my wage, for instance, was around $23 an hour, and it was a, kind of the lower end of uh, the spectrum in the southeast Chicago. Um, now we're reduced to fighting for 15. So, but that was the only sense that I would say they were middle class. Uh, that the jobs were dangerous, they were dirty. Um, we polluted the uh, neighborhoods where we worked. Uh, we made stuff like Chicago shortening that was not good for people. Um, and you know, and they were dangerous. So. Uh, to talk about bring back middle-class jobs, what do they mean? I, we right. don't want to bring back many of the kinds of jobs that uh, that I had during this period or that most people were forced to work their whole lives in. Yeah, we, we tend, uh, in this, maybe as in many things, we romanticize this thing that, that people who actually worked in it <laughs> wouldn't have much romantic to say about it. That's, that's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, they were, they were, um, they weren't, job that uh, where issues of, for instance, of worker health and safety weren't taken seriously really at any of the places I worked uh, for, um, that, that uh, the environmental impact. Southeast Chicago today is heavily polluted. Uh, Fosica, which we didn't talk about, that that became a super fun site. Well, we should talk about it then. What? Uh, why did it do so? It was. Um, oh, I remember. I was trying to like figure out what that one actually did. You say it, it, it created um, almost like insulating walls for steel manufacture, like the actual. Uh, they used it in, the, in processing steel. The, the, oh, okay. the customer were all the steel mills in the area. Okay. Um, yeah, it's an international. Still exists. It's an international company that. Uh, makes products to facilitate uh, steel and iron uh, making. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of plants did is they took care of industrial waste by burying it uh, lots that were connected to the plant. I remember taking a, a transformer that had blown out, and, uh, and those things had PCBs in them that are highly uh, carcinogenic, and I put it on a... a uh, forklift and drove it out. They told me to drive it out in the yard and dump it in a big hole they had out there. So the steel mills, everybody did that. Right. And uh, so the neighborhoods are quite polluted and that uh, the site of Fosico uh, you know, was, was horrible because of all the right. silicone and uh, maybe asbestos and stuff and they just covered it all over. Last time I saw it was covered over with gravel. Right. Cap. They might have put uh, clay over it. I don't know. But last I checked, it was still a super fun site. Well, we know a bit about that here in Bloomington, which had been home to an RCA factory for a long time and has its own PCB issues and super fun cleanup sites as well. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Dave Ranney, author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, published by PM Press. 
about working in the factories of Chicago's Southeast Side from 1976 to 1982, and why nostalgia for so-called middle-class jobs like these is a manufactured fairy tale. So uh, we've talked about racism and, and class and, and part of the uh, your own uh, ability to go into these situations and, and have some sense of what it would mean to affect your um, your workplace, your relationships with the understanding of class and race and how they work together. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a good book for that reason, right? You're trying to give us some some sense of how how you have to make use of what we would call your advantage or privilege to. to to help other people in this situation. Yeah, well, I felt, to tell you the truth, a real special responsibility being there. And I, I did at the time, and I think about it you know, now, that what what is somebody like me uh, doing there, and uh, what is my responsibility? And so we never, we meaning STO and the other organizations I was with, never had the perspective of going there to recruit people. We didn't have the perspective of agitating. And I was very careful not to agitate because I knew, like, for instance, at Chicago Shortening, if that strike went south, that I'd have a much better chance of ending up on my feet than anybody there. Of course, I did. Um, so I was careful not to uh, to agitate. On the other hand, uh, I believe that at a workplace, the workers there have some real insights about you know, what's wrong with society today, and they have, uh, and as they struggle, they come up with other insights about what a new society would look like, and how, for instance, the picketing of uh, of Chicago shortening. We didn't have a union telling us when to picket. Uh, we organized ourselves, and I didn't organize it. I was very consciously not doing that, mm -hmm. and they, the, the workers there, did it all themselves. So. That, that was a look at the whole notion that in a new society, people can run it themselves. Right, right. So, uh, so I, because of that, I also didn't want to try to hold people back from you know, doing things like, like the Chicago shortening strike, for instance. I didn't say, don't do this. Um, I, you know, I did tell a, a guy who brandished a pistol on the, on the picket line to put it away uh, that, that that was really a bad idea. But... You know, other than a few times, I really didn't uh, intervene to hold people back either. Now, you make also the point that um, you and your friend at the Workers' Rights Center, uh, you discover, and you may have known this already, but that the law serves the capitalist class generally and that there's no uh, change in how how the workplace is going to be different uh, if you rely on making change through the law that uh, the and the courts that part of your work with the law or work with the Workers Rights Center was just to keep uh, sort of keep the law at bay almost while you were uh, allowed to keep doing the the organizing work. You know, I, I think in some struggles, you know, that I've been involved in, people and there's a lawyer present. People want the lawyer to go and 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 do something that uh, we were conscious about not. Uh, using the law in that way. Uh, when the Chicago shortening strike came down, the first thing the company and union did was to get an injunction against picketing. And the lawyer stepped in and uh, pulled some legal maneuvers that killed the injunction for a time. So it, it gave us some breathing room to continue the struggle. And I think that was the whole perspective. U.S. labor law 
particularly, uh, in, uh, as probably many of your listeners know, in the 1950s underwent an overhaul uh, to try to make the unions less you know, radical, less revolutionary. And there were particular uh, pieces of legislation that really limited uh, the role that, that unions could play. They red-baited the unions and forced them to kick a lot of the lefties out of the unions in the 1950s. And, you know, we're still faced with that today. So they're not, the labor law is not a vehicle to have radical change. It's a way to uh, keep uh, production going, so to speak. Right, right, right. Well, uh, is, is there anything you'd like to end with, Dave, that you, you'd like the listeners to take forward? Again, it's a fascinating look at a time that's, that's as you say, is, is past, at a time that kind of you could look back on and say this is the tail end of what might have been a good period for wages, if not actual life or, you know, being involved in this kind of factory work. Um, but factory work at the time had started to wane and, and, and what has been left in its, in its wake, um, and, and what, what we should do going forward. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there are obviously are still a lot of workplaces today. And I, I do think that organizing at the workplaces is, is continues to be very important thing for for people to be involved in, and and I think one of the things that I learned by doing that, though, is you don't do that from the outside, that people have to take the time and have the patience to be with the people that are, uh, you know, if you're a radical and, a, and an activist, to, to be with people over a period of time and really understand what they're saying, you know, and, hear, and listen, to, listen to them. That's our show. We'll close with Ellis McDaniel, better known as Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley was born in Macomb, Mississippi, and moved to South Chicago when he was six years old. And the rest is the history of blues and rock and roll. This is Pollution, off of Tales from the Funk Dimension, 1970-73, Drive by Bo. Thanks to Dave Ranney for joining us and for gifting activists and workers with a useful history of life in factories in Chicago as the world began to suffer under exposure to the deadly radiation of Reaganite. His book is Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, From the Outside In and the Inside Out, published by PM Press. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Pollution. Pollution.